This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. Today, well, there's trouble brewing in West Africa as the 11th century moves along, and the trouble there is quite similar to the trouble up north, across the forbidding Sahara, and across the Strait of Gibraltar. Now, to be fair, it's certainly not identical, but both the Empire of Ghana and the Cordoba Caliphate succumb to the heat and pressure of a new kind of Muslim. In fact, one could say a new kind of Berber. So let's get to it. Today's episode, episode 64, is entitled Trouble from Within. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. was 1042, and the empire of Ghana, or Wagadu, under the leadership of Ghana Basi, which, as a reminder, is like saying King Basi or Emperor Basi, as Ghana is simply a title and not the name of a people. Ghana Basi and his empire had enjoyed a number of decades of relative peace and economic prosperity. The salt and the gold trades were successful, and the Muslims across the Sahara were still eager to make the dangerous trek south, risking thousands of lives per year to get their hands on the West African treasures. Ganabasi had ruled for exactly 32 years at this point, and he enjoyed a good relationship with the Muslim Berbers who visited his court annually to honor the Ghana and to pay their respects. Basi was just one Ghana in a long line of Ghanas who enjoyed such relations with the Muslims to the north. But Basi had heard rumors of a shift in the direction of the Muslim people in recent years. Whispers, Basi knew, carried like sand in the desert winds, passing over incredibly large distances on a single breath. He also knew that rumors like these sand particles change drastically from the beginning of their journey to the end, as every time it brushes up against another sand particle, it loses a little bit of its original shape and content. But these whispers, these rumors, were of a different tone than those that came before it, but Basi didn't exactly know what to make of them. They were strange, just, you know, different, threatening even, like a vast storm cloud growing just beyond the southwestern horizon. The vast ocean of sun-scorched sand and rock had always acted as a barrier, a helpful wall of danger that kept armies away since time immemorial. Only the bravest few would dare make the trip, which has kept Wagadu, or Ghana, safe since it was founded. Founded so long ago, the griots couldn't even keep track of the years that had passed, years that had been worked into legends of months-long battles and decades-long droughts. But these rumors were growing in number, and this unnerved Ganabasi. Rumor had it that a new idea had swept through the Muslim world, at least that of the Berber lands to, the, to Wagadu's north. And for us, a thousand years later, with our bird's-eye view of it all, we know that Ganabasi's anxiety was certainly warranted. There was a shift in northern African Islam, and its founder was actually from a tribe that lived in the Sahel. 
See, there was a sub-region that straddled all three major regions of West Africa a thousand years ago. And to hopefully prevent any confusion, I'd like to review those before we continue. North of the Sahara Desert was the Maghreb, consisting of Berber and Arab Muslims. South of the Maghreb was the massive Sahara Desert, which, as we know, had few permanent settlements, but those did exist. Those that did exist were pretty much all Berber, with exceptions popping up when the Arabs moved into the desert. And then finally, the southernmost region of these three is the Sahel, where Berber and Arab Muslims initially created a commercial corridor of trade that served both sides for a couple of centuries by the turn of the first millennium. All right, so this subregion I mentioned was called the Sanhaja, and the Sanhaja had its northernmost tip piercing the Maghreb, somewhere a couple hundred miles south of modern-day Tunis. The Sanhaja's midsection swelled to stretch from Libya to Algeria in the north and from Niger to Mali in the south. One tiny area did reach into modern-day Mauritania, but that's way down in the southeast corner with Mali. It's important to remember that without political maps of the time, borders not just in West Africa but all around the medieval world were subject to interpretation. Just refer to our episode on Geoffrey the Hammer Martel taking on Duke William the Bastard up in France around the same time as, we, as where we are right now in West Africa. Borders, well, they're tricky things. And the Sanhaja, being nothing more than a loose confederation of Berber and West African tribes and communities who sought to capitalize on their northern and southern powerhouse empires, well, these agreements changed and morphed throughout the years, and so it's difficult to pin down the clear borders of this Sanhaja region. Which brings us to the man who began life in a Banu Gudala community in the Sanhaja's westernmost point, just inside the modern border of Mauritania from Mali. And this, notably, was considered by Muslims from Arabia to Iberia as Bilad as Sudan, or translated, Land of the Blacks. Now, this is no small detail to be sure. His name was Yahya ibn Ibrahim, and though he grew up near the Senegal River, he would journey north to cities such as Sijilmasa, Marrakesh, and Fez, which were Berber Muslim strongholds with close commercial ties with everyone from Cordoba to Audegast. Crossroads like these are breeding grounds for new ideas. Just think about cities like Jerusalem and you know what I'm talking about. However, though a young Yahya ibn Ibrahim was quite the traveler, having made the trek all the way to Mecca in the Arabian desert and back, he became a local leader among his people when he returned. More importantly, he was also, one might say, radicalized by a man named Warjabi ibn Rabis, who had the people of the Empire of Ghana in his ideological crosshairs. I mean, by the 1040s, at least in the West, Muslims kind of ran out of land to conquer, if you know what I mean. Once they hit the Atlantic and Cordoba rose to prominence, well, taking into consideration how quickly Muslims blazed across northern Africa and into Iberia, they just stalled. Expansion was critical to their original purpose, at least politically, and they became victims of their own ambition. They became hemmed in by the Mediterranean Sea 
the Atlantic Ocean, the near-impenetrable Sahara Desert, and Christianity at all other choke points. The only way, well, was south. And Warjabi ibn Rabis knew Balad as-Sudan was ripe for the conquest. The trade highways were well-established, the reliance on each other was well-established, and the Muslim presence throughout the Maghreb was also, that's right, well-established. Light a little fire under his fellow believers, and he had himself an army. Groom the right leader, and he had himself ahead of that army. Invoke the words of their god, and you have yourself a good old-fashioned jihad, a justification for just about anything you wish. And who better to lead that army of jihadists than a devout brother who was born and raised at the edges of Islam in a clan deeply associated with Bilad as-Sudan, again, the land of the blacks. To boot, this guy had already proven his deep devotion to Islam by partaking in the Hajj, which is no small feat of faith as well as a courage as well as courage as the journey, a journey of over 3,800 miles. Yeah, the Hajj wasn't easy. <laughs> but and here's what played so well into Warjabi's plan. Yahya ibn Ibrahim, this man we're talking about, had a very interesting past before returning from Mecca. First, Yahya's older brother had already tried to pull Berber tribes into a closer-knit confederation in the far western Sanhaja. Now, it only lasted three years, but Yahya most certainly learned a few things about leadership and revolution by serving near or under his brother. On top of this, Yahya stopped by the Saharan Arab stronghold, Kairouan, on his way back from his Hajj around 1041. While Warjabi was firing up small pockets of Berbers in the western parts of the Sanhaja, and even outside of the Sanhaja lands toward the Atlantic, this Yahya ibn Ibrahim was consulting a major Islamic thinker of the time, Abu Imram al-Fasi, a religious scholar with close ties to the Zirid Muslim leader, who at the time was seriously considering cutting all ties with his Fatimid overlords based out of Cairo. Kairouan was a volatile place in the mid-11th century for sure, and Yahya ibn Ibrahim was right there in the mix of the religious fracturing, learning from his new mentor, again, Abu Imran al-Fasi. And here, listener, please note that this story can fork, and it can go in a completely different direction. We could continue to follow Yahya ibn Ibrahim back from Mecca toward his destiny way out in Western Africa. That's one thing we could do. Or from this point in Kairouan in 1041, we can turn north toward the Mediterranean Sea and sail onto the island of Sicily, where if you remember from past episodes, the Zirid leaders there in cities such as Palermo and Syracuse, well, they were succumbing to the Byzantine onslaught led by the likes of George Maniakis, William Ironarm de Hauteville, and a young Harold Hardrada. These same Zirid leaders will be affected by the decisions made by the Zirid leader in Kairouan. But we will pick up that story later, I promise you. We're going to stay with Yahya ibn Ibrahim for the time being. And Yahya talked through quite a bit with his new teacher. He voiced his concerns about the people of Western Sanhaja, his people, becoming far too lax in their interpretations 
and their practices of the Quran. According to Yahya, Islam was far too lenient in those areas, and he wished for a new regime to press home the original intentions and teachings of the Prophet Muhammad. Within months, Yahya moved on from Kairouan and returned home by the end of 1041, around the same time that his old mentor, Warjabi, passed. I should note that Yahya was given one Abd Allah ibn Yasin to accompany him and teach him along the way, as Yasin was originally from another Berber Ghana border town, so he was well aware of the people who lived near Yahya's people. Yahya ibn Ibrahim had a new purpose. He was to overhaul Islam in the Western Sahara and expand its influence. And having grown up so close to Balad as-Sudan, again translated from Arabic as Land of the Blacks, he knew the pagan peoples of Wagadu would benefit from the Prophet's teachings. Now, while Yahya was on Hajj, Warjabi had been leading his own little jihad and had made inroads around Muslim lands in the western Saharan desert, which laid the groundwork for Yahya's return. When Yahya did return, when he arrived back home, fueled by his ideals and visions of a return to original intent, as well as an extension of his mentor in Kairouan, that is, the man Yassin, well, Yahya was ready to make a move. So Yahya sent his new friend Yassin around to neighboring Berber communities to preach and to organize. And Yassin was one hell of an organizer. He was highly successful in whipping up a fervor among the Berber Muslims and spreading the word of the potency of Yahya ibn Ibrahim's rulership and his vision. Yassin preached to one group of people called the Lamtuna, and their leader would play a great role in the coming years. And what was brewing was something that was starting to become, you know, a solid feature of the religion's future. When things got stagnant, it was time to rile everyone up into another frenzy. And I don't mean to just throw that out there as, as kind of a, you know, a throwaway comment. It was purposeful. It was meant to rejuvenate. It had the purpose of rejuvenation at its core, that rejuvenation uh, was about re rejuvenating its ancestral fervor for this, for more, I should say, for more expansion. But at the time, to Yahya's south, near his homelands along the Senegal River, well, that was quite an influential people that lived down there, and it's a people we haven't discussed yet. They were called the Takuri, who were people belonging to a sub-Saharan group who were separate from the powerful Ghanas of Wagadu, though Berbers to the north certainly considered them as residents of Balad as-Sudan. Now, these Tukruri were incredibly important to the area as they were folks who controlled all trade along the Senegal River from near Autogast all the way west to the Atlantic. And the Tukruri were sitting on several of the more lucrative salt mines in West Africa. These were no pushovers, these people. And both the people in Wagadu as well as northern Berbers knew this very well. But they also knew that the Tukruri were a fairly small region, so they'd all have to play their cards just right. So the Muslims played into Tukrur carefully, which is a break from tradition actually, but seemed to have been the right move. They slowly poured Islamic scholars into Tukrur 
and began to change it from within, within a decade or so. Now, granted, Takrur didn't officially convert to Islam, but its people were far more open to it than the people of Wagadu. And in the years between 1040 and 1055, so that 15-year gap, we should keep in mind that the Ghana of Wagadu had moved the empire's capital from Kumba Saleh, which we talked about on the last episode, to Autogast, closer to this sort of epicenter of what's about to happen. Now that said, this coincided with the rise of these new Western Muslims and their conquests over the Berber tribes around them. So I wonder if that was to consolidate Ghana's power and influence further west as a buttress against possible Muslim aggression into the empire. I don't know for sure, but it kind of makes sense to me. Either way, with Takrur weakened, so to speak, uh, at least from a the at least from the perspective of Wagadu, with the Takrur weakened and these new Muslims who called themselves Almira Batun which is not to be confused with the modern-day Western African terrorist group by the same name, just to be very clear about that. Or, as history has recorded these people, the Almoravids. It seems Ghana Basi wasn't crazy for taking these rumors seriously. By 1053, these Almoravids had secured northern trade heading south by, con- by conquering the incredibly important trade post-slash-city, Sijomasa. With that bulkhead in the north of the Sahara, there was only one way to head south, toward the mighty empire of Ghana. Strike it right in the heart. The Almoravids, by 1055, completely controlled Autogast. The empire of Ghana, Wagadu, had succumbed to the heavy outside influence of Islam particularly the rising power of the much stricter and less tolerant Almoravids. And this is the origins of Islam being the majority religion in West Africa today, 1,000 years later. Now, this conversion didn't happen all at once, mind you. We should know this from previous podcasts on the subject that conversion was never really a group effort. It was often forced at the point of a sword, and West Africa was no different. In fact, many of their traditional pre-Islamic stories and beliefs have thankfully survived the last thousand years. And I don't say that as some anti-Muslim nonsense. No, I merely mean that it gives us insight into life, into the lives of our most distant ancestors, which is very important regardless of where on earth you're studying. Now, according to Al-Ziri, a Muslim chronicler who wrote after the accounts of the great Al-Bakri ended, stated that as of the mid-1070s, the former empire of Ghana was full of Islamic scholars, jurists, lawyers, and readers of the Prophet's holy words. This was the seismic shift that occurred in 11th century West Africa. But there were possibly some political and military shenanigans going on in the 1040s and the 1050s as well, and I think it's worth fleshing out a bit here. Remember, just a few minutes ago, when we learned about the Almoravids taking a more subtle approach with Takrur and slowly pumping Muslim scholars and preachers into the region? Well, in the book African Dominion about medieval West Africa, author Michael Gomez suggests something curious. He writes, quote, Ghana was already at war with Scylla, end quote. 
Now, Silla was a river port city along the Senegal River, inside of Takrur. It's not unheard of for the people of one West African region to attack or raid or manipulate another region, but it's curious it was occurring at just the right time for the Almoravids to blaze a quick and deadly trail straight into the heart of Balad Asudan, that is, the Empire of Ghana. I just wonder if that little war between Ghana and Takrur at the Takruri River port city of Silla around that time was directly manipulated by the Almoravids through their softening relations with Takrur. Again, with Muslims spilling into Takrur for a couple decades, it might be plausible that whatever spurred trouble between Ghana and Takrur could very well have had Muslims behind it. And when Autogast, the capital of Ghana, was left devoid of any serious resistance, again, having sent its standing army west to Silla already, well, the Almoravids swooped in and crippled the mighty empire, not quite fatally stabbing its heart. Gomez continues, quote, Whatever the verities, the end result is the same. By 1076 to 1077, Ghana was a Muslim state, lauded for its adherence to Islam while engaged in slaving and militaristic promotion of its creed. End quote. Now here's a very interesting passage from Gomez's book that ties in the function of the griots within West African history. Take a moment to think back to the last to the last episode we had and the tale of Amadou and the snake god Beda. Gomez writes, quote, "Whereas the external record is vague, the oral tradition employs allegory to explain the demise or transformation of a kingdom so powerful. When the virgin to be sacrificed to the royal snake Beda during the reign of Wagadu's seventh king is saved by a young suitor who kills Beda, the latter curses Wagadu, leading to drought and famine. Beda's severed head lands in Bure, in the land of the southern Mande speakers, which becomes a new source of gold. A Seninke diaspora results from the catastrophe, and Wagadu comes to a calamitous end. End quote. And this is where Gomez and I agree. He says, quote, Rather than Ghana's demise, the Beda allegory may be better understood as a lamentation of a late 11th century confrontation with a form of Islam far less tolerant than that which preceded, when Muslim merchants and learned men peacefully coexisted with a non-Muslim Ghanaian ruling elite. That ancestral religion was displaced is a primary meaning of the tale, but the fact that the Jula or Wangara also left implies their own rejection of a rigid Islam. End quote. By the way, side note, Jula and Wangara are two Saninke tribes that were a part of the southbound mass exodus from Wagadu after the fall of Autogast. But not all Saninke people were quick to leave, regardless of how they felt about Islam and its new regime of stricter, less tolerant practices. No, we have to remember that West Africa was like just about everywhere else on the planet, and communal wounds ran deep, and they were quite often hereditary. The Susu people were a Mande-speaking group who lived under the Saninke Ghanas, an elite within the empire. Long before the Susu were victims of Saninke subjugation and though still able to enjoy the fruits of their labors as well as those of the empire at large, 
they were still known as well, not Saninke, basically. That, of course, breeds resentment, as you can probably imagine. And during the beginnings of the Almoravid invasions into Takrur and then the Empire of Ghana, led by the effective and capable leader named Abu Bakr, the Susu people saw the cracks in the dam and decided to take their own axes and hammers and make some holes in the facade of the Saninke rulership. It would be the Susu who really came out of the Almoravid invasion of Ghana all the better, as they would pick up the mantle where the Saninke had dropped it. When the dust settled, the Susu elite would rename Wagadu as Kante and break a rather sizable chunk off of the former empire. Kante, being a regional power now, the Susu made quick peace with Abu Bakr's Almoravids, having seen the devastation that they were capable of creating, and the Empire of Ghana, as a traditional West African empire, had ceased to be by the mid-1070s. It was fully Muslim. But it was still the Empire of Ghana in name. The griot was essential for the continuation of West African practices and traditions. Some griots, of course, left in the diaspora, but many remained in this new West African Muslim empire of Ghana, and they were able to expertly weave these traditional beliefs into Islam that had taken official hold. It was these griots who allowed us to see so much of pre-Islamic West Africa, these exact griots from the 11th century. Ghana would once again rise from the ashes wrought by the Almoravids in Autogast, but it won't be on this episode. There was an entirely different direction the Almoravids were looking during the fall of Autogast. Autogast was just the beginning of the much larger Almoravid expansion during the same time period, the mid to late 11th century. But we'll have to pick up that part of the story on the next episode. Now don't think, though, that we've just dipped into West Africa never to return. No, no. As I've said before, I'm learning that West Africa played quite an interesting role in how the West was formed and reformed and reformed again over the last 1,000 years. We will return, but when we do, as you can tell, it will be a completely different West Africa. But first, we need to see how this new Muslim, this new Berber, in fact, movement plays out. Catch us on the next episode when we follow this fledgling new fundamentalist movement within Islam northwards as we make our return to Iberia. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.